Hello and welcome to another iteration of our CFOC podcast. Today it's quite a big day. We've actually got a little bit of a joint podcast here with a couple of members from BCA. So we've got, first of all, we've got uh, Connor, who's the policy director over at the British Conservation Alliance, and Georgia, who's the external comms officer. How are you both doing? Yeah, good. Thanks, Mike. Not bad. So we thought it'd be quite good just to have a little (laughs) bit of a a chat about um, environmentalism, especially on the right, which is something that has often been maligned over the past few years. And it's something that I know BCA are working really hard to try and change. And it's something that's really important across the Commonwealth for us, but also at home in the UK. So would you like to start us off by really just giving us a lowdown on what is market environmentalism and what does BCA do? What does that mean for Conservatives? Which one of us is going to take the charge? Is it going to be me for the policy? I feel like, Connie, you will do a better job of explaining the policy. Um, I could also Aww. touch a little bit on, you know, market environmentalism, if, if it's okay if I button slightly. Um, it's kind of what it says on the tin, really. It's, um, you know, care for the environment, conservation, um, you know, trying to create a sustainable future. Um, but uh, with, you know, taking free market free market principles into account so not sort of taking for granted the idea which pretty much every you know government and major NGO does and um, you know multilateral organizations like the UN for example they really take for granted the idea that okay if we're going to solve environmental issues it must be done through big state intervention and market environmentalism is a pushback against that because it's simply not the case. Yeah I'd tack on there it's the way I would look at it is it's the substantiated belief by a wealth of evidence at this point that free markets are the most ethical and the most effective method for addressing contemporary climate issues. Uh, it's the only one that has any sort of foundation with things like the environmental Kuznets curve, or if you look at the history of the amount of people that were elevated out of poverty, that capitalism is the greatest growth engine and also the best motivator for moving towards more sustainable business practices in human history and it's definitely the more ethical if you look at the hands-off non-interventionist approach that's meant to be conducted by liberal democracies in the west compared to our eco-fascist and eco-socialist opponents that uh, flank us with the horseshoe theory Um, and also just speaking on a global level i mean most of the the countries that are still uh, currently industrializing obviously in the developing world um sort of their emissions are going up in terms of you know co2 that kind of those kind of things um, and I suppose you could say that market environmentalism is about letting those less developed countries or, or industrialising countries have a hand in their own future rather than you know the UN or, or the US government sort of telling them what to do. Um, I think that brings us to a really good point actually because if you look at something like the Commonwealth obviously that, that tends to be uh, where a lot of our focus goes a lot of Commonwealth policy especially in regards to development has been putting the onus on those smaller countries to um, develop themselves and, and not just have oh, these are the old these are the old powers telling you what to do and how to do it. So do, do you think something like the Commonwealth with that massive group of developing nations within it can, can really become a, a force for positivity within that market environmentalist debate? Definitely. I, I think if you look, uh, the climate crisis affects every single Commonwealth country. Um, especially the sort of smaller, more vulnerable countries. Um, you know, the, the rising temperature, sea level rise, uh, storm surges, droughts, floods and hurricanes. Um, and if you look back through history, so I think back in 1989, the Commonwealth leaders um, 
were the first ones, I think it was the first collective statement on greenhouse gas emissions uh, on the Lang Kagawi Declaration. Um, so that they put forward a sort of motion, a few of the Commonwealth leaders, countries came together and made that sort of statement. This was back in 1989. So I think definitely the, the Commonwealth has a, a big part to play um, because I think with regards to climate, it is something that really does require international cooperation. Absolutely, if I could just I guess, tap into that a little bit. I'm actually currently, currently writing something about how, you know, Britain's soft power, which the Commonwealth and our, um, you know, post-colonial legacy is obviously a massive pillar of, um, is one of the major ways that we should be shaping our global strategy, but also on climate. And especially, I think that while we do see the rise of, uh, you know, highly centralised, you know, quite tyrannical economies like China that, aren't necessarily uh, sharing the Western perspective in a lot of ways on, on climate and environmentalism. I think that that leaves a vacuum where Britain can improve its approach. Approach Britain can, you know, uh, the EU and also the US, obviously the biggest Western power, you know, in the world. Um, so I think, yeah, the Commonwealth is a big part of that. Obviously, you know, I guess a strength and a weakness is the fact that it's soft power. It's not sort of, you know, us telling them what to do <laughs> um, directly. Um, but I think in a way, um, just thinking about the situation in Africa um, right now, uh, Africa being the location of a lot of Commonwealth countries, of course, um, some of whom, like Rwanda, for example, that went even part of the British Empire. Um, there's definitely a competition between, I guess, Chinese, Chinese influence and Western influence, because the reality is that foreign influence does play a big part in Africa, in African politics, geopolitics, um, and control of resources and economies. Um, and I think that while China does offer, you know, low interest loans and investment in infrastructure, that kind of thing, I think that, you know, Western powers in a way, uh, Britain being one of them, of course, can offer a competitive advantage in the fact that we might be, you know, better placed to, um, to offer market solutions than, say, China would. And obviously, you know, as Connor was, was saying at the beginning, we know that market strategies work better than highly centralised ones. So that's not just a way of helping, you know, to improve the environment and to improve economies in Africa, but also help shape uh, the Western strategy uh, going forward in, in some regions, such as, uh, you know, areas of sub-Saharan Africa, for example. Well, our, our unique Commonwealth relations as well, they have a pretty, they have a two-pronged approach in terms of market environmentalist policies, because you have the unique angle of analytics, which Everyone touts the climate crisis as the world ends in 10 years, but that's the, the alarmist rhetoric you get with people like AOC and, and the clowns and XR and whatnot. Unfortunately for them, that isn't true, but there is an element in, of truth in that there will be, to borrow an American phrase, which I don't particularly like, but I'll, I'll clarify, there will be disparate impact on developing nations in terms of threat to human life compared to developed nations, wealthier nations, Western nations, whatever the term you want to use in terms of property damage. That's where the market environmentalist angle comes in. The, the motivator for busy, big business in the West is that climate change is going to have more of an impact on your assets than it is on human lives. There's just a, a general fact of, even though that it's often cited that climate change is the source of increased natural disasters, over the last century, deaths from natural disasters have massively plummeted. And that's mainly due to innovations, for example, that the Netherlands has developed to, to prevent floods that have outsourced um, to the developing world. But the fact that we have so many developing nations in the British Commonwealth, it allows us to take a, a bifurcated approach to addressing both the issues of property damage and also 
measures which mitigate the loss of life, which can be rolled out across both. And then when we're implementing those measures, it allows us to have not not trial run countries, but as soon as we've been delocalized from the EU, we have less of a top down approach because the EU's climate policies, if you look at anything from the fisheries to, to reforestation to their approach to importing goods based, uh, environmental based goods like solar panels and that, they bungle about every issue. They make it massively bureaucratic and, and not cost effective at all. With Britain, now I know we set on embroiling ourselves in new international agreements like the TPP, which I'm sure we'll end up talking about and I'll blow my top off on later. But we have, with the Commonwealth countries, the opportunity to establish things like uh, cross-border tax reciprocal loans for in, in, infrastructure projects, which means that we would cap, uh, cut income tax on loans given to level up the uh, uh, roads or uh, energy grid of a Commonwealth country. And we can use that considering our historical relationships between Britain and those nations. So the Commonwealth's a massively beneficial asset, both in assessing our strategy going forward and implementing solutions for Britain specifically uh, when dealing with climate problems. I think, yeah, specifically on that, so the Commonwealth already has a quite a, quite a broad project called the Small States Tri Trade Finance Facility, which essentially um, makes it easier for those, those smaller developing countries and people operating within them to get to get loans by just the Commonwealth will guarantee them. So if, if you then trans, transfer that into, into really putting uh, money and research at that very base level in, into combating climate change, that then becomes instantly a massive resource for those smaller countries to use without harming themselves economically, which, is, which has, I think, you, you've got a lot of smaller countries, I think, as we've touched on in, in the world, that look at people like the US Try trying to dictate to them about how they're so bad for the climate, and the reality is that they're producing a, a fraction of a fraction of the CO two emissions. Especially compared with the US, I'm sure we're going to get onto Biden at some point again. It's, this, it, all these topics are very interconnected, but the idea that you're going to have years of a very strong economy plus energy independence, which fracking is controversial, yes, but if we're looking if we're looking realistically from now to, to 2050 carbon capture and lower carbon methods of energy production have to be on the table because there's a transition period. At the moment, I've done the maths for this and it's going to be coming out in a report with the Adam Smith Institute. But if we were to run everything on, on renewables, it would cost ridiculous amounts of billions to even implement in the first place. There isn't the battery storage capacity for the grid and you would have a possibly 15 gigawatt deficit for up to a month each time and no way of safeguarding that. So the, the tech just isn't there. But the idea that the US would then scrap their energy independence at the same time they've got a record economy and they're the leading nation for reducing their emissions three years in a row after leaving the Paris Climate Accords is, is just astounding to me. And then now you're going to have President Biden and the Progressive Squad marching halfway around the world and telling every international organisation exactly how they're going to run things in regards to climate. I think you should probably lead by example first, mate. And also, sorry, I just wanted to push uh, or follow up rather on what you were just saying about um, battery materials. I mean, things like lithium, things like rare earths are materials that are highly concentrated in often in very unstable countries. Um, they're finite resources in most cases that are used to make batteries. I know that we're improving the technology to do with that, but that's still the case with the majority of battery technology, for example. I think that when we talk about the environment and conservation, we often seem to forget about that nowadays in, in normal conversation. It seems to be all about, you know, greenhouse gases, etc. We forget about the state of resources um, 
we, we forget, you know, of course, fossil fuels are also finite resources. But um, yeah, I think it's important to think about things like that when you're thinking about um, investing in renewable energy. Um, it's not as simple as, okay, we make this thing, it's renewable forever, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a lot of ethical and, I guess, uh, considerations to be made. Ethical and, I'm trying to think of the word, ethical and sustainability related um, concerns concerning renewable energy it's not as simple as it just being a you know one size fits all solution you know if it was we would have it more than we do in the uk now there are definitely as well i think part of what you're going to say was practical concerns in terms of yeah that was probably the word i was looking for there you go see great minds think alike (laughs) we have we do have a symbiotic relationship with those countries but in, in in pure production level uh demand outpaces supply and you can see that with clowns like Ed Miliband who again sorry I'm not I'm not particularly party partisan here most of the politicians in the UK are absolute clowns most of the time but if Labour wanted to take climate seriously he wouldn't have put Ed Miliband in charge he goes on Groove Morning Britain this morning saying we need a massive drive of electric cars one doesn't own one himself two if we had a wholesale adoption of electric cars in this country we have, we have 30 million now we're not going to have the manufacturing ability to, to do that and even if we have that some people have been saying, oh, at least we can have the electric charging units, which you also got to pay for, uh, and, and the cars themselves as some sort of backup battery for power generation. So if renewables takes a dip in the grid, we can use our cars to charge up our homes. That's only going to make up, I think it was something ridiculous, like 1% when we, we worked it out. But again, the numbers are going to be coming out in an upcoming paper. So that's also not a viable solution. So they're not, they're not only the technology is not there to support the grid at the moment. It's also not a, a, like a backup generator thing like a lot of people have been claiming. And the resources aren't even there to develop all of the things we need in the first place. Do you think this is a, do you think this is a wider problem within politics generally, but especially within the environmental space? We've, we've kind of ended up in this situation where rhetoric has taken precedence over actual action. I think you can apply that to Biden throughout his entire political career and where we see the US going as well. Because even, even in January, he, he kind of made a big show and dance about cutting US subsidies to fossil fuels, but then that just went away very quickly and quietly. And do you think, you take XR as well as another perfect example, where they just say things that sound nice, but are actually completely pointless. Do you think that's a, do you think that's a major problem within the environmentalist debate? The world is staffed by midwits. And it's, it's both a, a, a consequence of being in online echo chambers for so long. And also it's a, it's a temporal concern. So I was chatting to, this, uh, to a friend about this, whose podcast might be coming up at some point next week. But if you look at the way the EU is run, uh, a lot of the US senators and a lot of the British MPs, just as mini case studies, for example, they have such a surface level understanding of so many of the issues they're meant to be campaigning on because they've not only got local concerns, which they hardly address, but also most of the time, the things they get up and stand up and say in Parliament, they have been told to say those things because it's in accordance with the party line. And you've got some underpaid junior staffer writing all of their speeches for them. And that's why it's very rare that people Kemi uh, Badenoch or Liz Truss can articulate some sort of solid foundation of the ethical underpinnings of the other side's argument because you very rarely get people who can are, are in office who can articulate the issues properly or who have the staff that have the time to go through all the issues and write something for them to parrot out later that's coherent and doesn't contradict all of their political history it's far easier to just say party line platitudes which keep you in a safe seat than it is to to stick your neck out and actually have a, a, a comprehensive understanding of the issues and, and overcome the Dunning-Kruger effect. And, and with groups in the streets like XR, they're often useful idiots for, for a higher, more nefarious cause. If you look at what a lot of the XR people have said, I mean, first of all, you're pairing up, as a lot of the Marxists do, you're pairing up anarcho-communists with 
uh, top-down socialists and a lot of the XR leadership are the more top-down tyrannical socialist types. I had a debate at Durham University where I believe it was their social media leading officer who'd been bashing me on Twitter the previous day, I'm very proud to say. She'd organized the Heathrow protest and she turned around and said, oh, the climate crisis is the perfect opportunity to create a complete overhaul of our economic systems to implement climate lockdowns so we can see the same deceleration of growth that we saw in 2020 with the 8% dipping carbon emissions and institute racial reparations as just like a, a as a as an endpoint and it's like this is just a trojan horse for you to get your to get your totalitarian ambitions in but these totalizing systems again provide people that sort of middling understanding uh, low effort thinkers to say oh this this is creates a, a root cause explanation for all of the things in the world and if i was just granted enough power me with my endless amounts of virtue can bring about the utopia sorry mate i doubt you're that smart and even if you are there's probably st someone standing behind you with the ice pick ready <laughs> i think i think xr is uh margaret thatcher once said this um and i think xr are a great example of this and i think there's other organizations that are also a fantastic example of this she said uh, nowadays socialism is more dressed up as environmentalism feminism or international concern for human rights you know, they all sound great and abstract, but if you scratch the surface, you'll see, uh, well, you're likely as not to discover anti-capitalism, patronizing distorting quotas, intrusions upon sovereignty and democracy of nations, new slogan, old errors. So I think XR and a lot of these sort of other uh, fringe movements we're seeing, um, if you really scratch the surface and look really deep down, it's the same sort of old age-old socialism message. And I don't think, to be honest, it has that much of a positive impact i think if you look at xr when they first started um you know i, I remember seeing one of their leaflets and some of the, the key points it's hard to disagree with we should all be more climate friendly we sure you know they're, they're pretty simple kind of principles but if you look at the way they have um, expanded and the, you look at the way they've grown and you look at the things that's coming out of their their mouths now it, to me it just screams socialism just using um environmentalism as that method if it wasn't environmentalism it'd be something else i'm not sure anymore um what their message isn't because i think it's deviated so far away from just purely environmentalism yeah well, i think uh, with xr it, it, all you need to do realistically is is go on their twitter just on any of their yeah. even their localized ones anything i think i went on the youth xr um one of one a few days ago and just scrolled down and generally just chuckled myself for an hour because it felt like satire um and it, there was just it's just nonsensical stuff that you can say loudly, um, but again, seems to garner public attention. And that's that's something that I think we've got to grapple with in all realms of politics. And I know BCA is really trying to really trying to get louder and get sensical as well. Um, but it's hard when those voices are really loud, but really not that smart. Um, it's hard to combat them. It's, it's often the employment of semantic overload, like you said, it, with the preliminary leaflet, saying environmental causes uh, it's something pretty much everyone can get on board with mainly because sustainability is good for business because obviously you want to keep your market afloat you want to create new new areas of innovation and also people have this intuitive sense of natural beauty it's something that the victorians talked a lot about to try and get back in touch with with the dualistic soul as soon as the industrial world rose up and and they were questioning god um, it's now even people have said the same sentiment that when we've been locked in our houses one of the few things we can do is talk around the streets and so the police officer comes up and asks you if you've got a license for that walk and even there were articles in the bca blog written by a few of, of our, our staffers uh, campus coordinators and, and policy researchers who have said 
we've rediscovered a sense of natural beauty that we can we can have this time in lockdown if that's one of the very few things to come good things to come of this tyrannical incursion on our personal rights but then fortunately again they're so stupid that they ruin the good graces that they have by by achieving semantic overload by conflating their moral prescriptive policies moral in, in their sense again I'm, I'm using their loaded language here with non-objectionable goals like climate justice whatever that means uh, by going out in the streets and doing dumb stuff like welding themselves to police cars or putting horrific reefs and, and disrupting the uh, the cenotaph um, uh, thing on memorial day which i wrote about that was on the daily express front page so shameless self-plug there and that's why things like the policing bill which has recently had a lot of contestation down in bristol from exactly xr funnily enough that's why I, my principal opposition comes from the opposite and it's normally that okay people should have the right to process and if these people are really being that disruptive allow them to publicly embarrass themselves because their public credibility tanks when they do stuff like this and fortunately for us again our ethical and effective principles are allowed to shine through off the back of them saying well we care about the environment but surely there's an opportunity there's got to be an alternative to people that dress like the handmaidens in the phantom menace as a kind of segue from XR then and uh, rhetoric over, over action, talking about uh, nuclear power and specifically Chinese involvement in UK nuclear power, because I know we've obviously, uh, with BCA, been, uh, with CFOC, been uh, chatting quite a lot about uh, Chinese involvement in the West and, and how they've kind of expanded across the world and have their tentacles in everything at the moment. But um, their, their involvement in the UK, in UK nuclear development has been has been big news at times, but should probably have been bigger more consistently. And it's kind of gone back under the radar again. Is that something that worries you? Well, I'll let, I'll let George speak a little bit on um, how they've been rolling out in other countries first, because I think there's going to be some interesting parallels I can pick up on there specifically for the way that they've been interfering with the UK. Yeah. So in terms of the things that I most, that I most uh, work on, I guess it's more to do with sort of Chinese, domestic policies and their global influence in general rather than you know specific environmental policies uh, in certain countries but I would certainly agree with you or, or to answer your question I would I would agree that you know Chinese interference or in, or heavy involvement in uh, western economies in general is uh, it's a concern and first and foremost it's a concern because of the fact that you know if you're looking at the primary sources for you know Chinese government officials what they say in their speeches what they you know the kind of things that they say publicly about their strategy um in terms of global dominance in the west you know pushing back against the west etc it's very clear that they you know they don't just you know they don't only want to um improve their own economy, um, their own resources. They would like to compete with the US um, on the world stage and be a world, a world superpower um, and eventually hopefully displace the US. And, you know, I think it's quite common among, you know, people in polite society, the intelligentsia, academia, whatever you want to call them or categorize them as, to actually praise this and say, okay, you know, this, this and this wasn't so great, but you know, the Chinese government has built up the economy in their country, they've lifted people out of poverty, blah, 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 which ironically is 
was a very common um, deference to, you know, the Soviet regime, even the Nazi regime and other authoritarian, be they fascist or communist regimes throughout the 20th century that we now look back upon and abhor. Well, unfortunately, some people still don't seem to have learned mistakes, but anyway. Um, and I think that that's not reason enough. I think that if you're looking at Chinese uh, domestic policy and, and it's many, many issues of human rights, for example, you know, repression of religious minorities, in particular, of course, a thing that I work on and a thing that's in the news a lot recently, but not as much as it should be, the repression of the Uyghur Muslims, you know, organ harvesting, forced labor, the crackdown in Hong Kong, um, international aggression in the South China Sea, in Bhutan, in, in um, its brutal treatment of areas like Tibet and Xinjiang, which are, you know, mainly populated by ethnic minorities that aren't part of the Han majority. Um, that uh, is a majority of the population in, in China and also the majority of people in power in China. Um, I think that you know, it doesn't take, it doesn't, just like with XI, you know, it doesn't take much to scratch the surface and see the very worrying things that are happening there. And you think, okay, is it a good idea for, you know, this regime to be controlling things like nuclear power in Europe or to be, you know, for us to be heavy reliant on them in terms of trade? And is it ethical, you know, should we be partnering with a government that is being accused very credibly, in my opinion, of genocide, for example, is it ethical and is it is it the best approach for our global security and strategy? I would say no, 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 it's definitely not. <laughs> as, as far as the technology itself goes, there is little safety concern about having the Chinese be involved in UK's nuclear power projects, because we have such rigorous safety requirements and they are very country specific that it's not like importing the Soviet Chernobyl model, for example. We, it's, it's a wholesale British construction. The problem is our reliance on Chinese state and every Chinese company has a faction of, of their company be beholden to the Chinese Communist Party, even Western countries who go there and employ it. Blizzard, for example, Nike, they have factions of the Chinese Communist Party in their company. Um, do we want that involved in our energy products uh, projects? Do we want any of our energy grid hold them to foreign state investment when we could actually liberalize our economic levers and have the private sector invest instead. So for example, Hinkley Point C and Sizewell C, there's a 22% and a 33% stake respectively in the projects that Chinese general nuclear hold. And the British government, since Cameron and Osborne were touting Sino-English uh, relations as being in a golden age. The, the commitment is still there to invest 500 million joint in a nuclear project between the UK and China. Now, this is after Boris the other, the other week comes out and said, we have a unique concern about what's going on with the Uyghurs. Okay, clearly not unique enough to scrap your, your plans for trade deals. Clearly not unique enough to vote on the genocide provision that allows the Supreme Court to investigate human rights abuses before we sign on the dotted line. But it's clearly enough for you to make a, a bit of cash and cooperatively work on the climate change. Uh, China as well, in terms of climate change, they, they're using this as a campaign to expand their influence. I know they're definitely making predatory loans isn't something I usually like to describe because it's seized upon by the social justice left to try and explain the 2008 housing crash. It's not the case of what happened at all. But in the, in the case of the Chinese, they are using predatory loan systems for developing nations because they're exploiting the inherently parasitic nature a dictator has with their people by saying, here's all this money to level up your economy, etc. We'll come back and, and 
pay protection when you're gone. So you can enrich yourself for a short amount of time and then your successor, they'll have to foot the bill. So there's, there's a, a sort of vampiric dependency that the Chinese are creating for developed nations on, on China. And I think the, the EU, for example, Germany's very willing to trade with China at the moment. I think they're growing frustrations with China on from an ethical standpoint, but it's very much that their China is threatening their own imperial ambitions in the region because the EU have their own powers for Africa as well. Um, the only thing I will say about China's intervention into technology is it's not a concern in the UK in terms of the technology itself, as I said, but in the US, for example, Biden did just repeal the ability to have Chinese technology be installed in the American energy grid. Now, Trump put a moratorium on it. He said, oh, we're going to review these policies. Now, if you review a policy, you might freeze it, but I'd say you keep it in place and then see what happens. And then instead, Biden scrapped it and has immediately started allowing the importing and installation of Chinese transformers into the American energy grid, which can have a, a, a backdoor for software, which could shut down the American energy grid in certain sectors. I mean, that's just a disaster waiting to happen. So I, I think, in, as, as George has already outlined, China's trying to be, their one China policy doesn't, doesn't stop at what they believe the China, Chinese borders are. They're massively trying to expand their, their influence worldwide. And if climate change is a banner under which they can do it in, in other continents and other neighboring nations, then that's definitely something they're looking to, to use. Do you think this extends into then like a wider problem that we've got in regards to international relations now, where something like climate change has kind of been dragged into this this pseudo cold war that the the West is kind of trying not to fight with China, but China are really intent on fighting, and because climate change has then been dragged into that, we're not going to see the action that might actually see tangible benefits because just from an international relations standpoint, they just can't not do it. China is just so big and so powerful at this point that trying to cut ties, if, even if you look at the, the Australians, the Australians are have a lot of problems, have had a lot of very public problems with the Chinese over the past six months, but can't manage to economically separate from them. And if that extends into, I think it's already there, but if it, if it continues to extend into the climate debate, do you think that might just get to a point where we don't see any real ethical benefits um, as a result of Chinese involvement? I think there's, there's two issues here. Um, I'll, I'll feel bad keep cutting Georgia off because then I'll keep going on rants because this is just such a dense topic. Uh, first one is the international relations angle. There's a lot of contradictions laden within that. Let's look at Germany, for example. So Germany is still paying X amount to NATO. Under Trump, they were made to pay a hell of a lot more, their fair share, whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, Germany then decommissioned all their nuclear plants. Now, they were perfectly safe. This was a rash decision made. I've put this in an upcoming report again, because I'll never stop writing. A rash decision made after the Fukushima disaster, which is a completely unique instance, because as far as I know, none of Germany's nuclear plants were built on cataclysmic fault lines, which might not be a sensible decision. But Merkel's decided to scrap the law. What that resulted in is massive brownouts because you can't fund, uh, you can't run a, a massive country like Germany on purely renewables when the technology isn't there. So they've had to go back and reopen all their fossil fuel plants while they've been continually getting rid of their nuclear. Explain that one to me. And then in the meantime, as a stopgap, as something to make up the shortfall, they've been turning to Russia and buying all their oil in a pipeline as they're paying defence money to NATO. So you've got stupid decisions create privation. Privation creates desperate action. Desperate action causes all of these leaders to violate their principles. And as a second point, these, this perceived desperate action and a lack of limiting principle is exactly what we're seeing 
as, as an exposure of the ills of our policymaking framework in the UK, for example. The Conservatives are Conservative in name only. They definitely aren't taking our market environment. Well, they're not, it's not they're not taking our market environmentalist approach because there is some appetite among some of the MPs, but their natural inclination is to just throw money at a problem and see what happens. I remember sitting in a, in a webinar and I forget which of the MPs it was, but we were talking about market environmentalist incentives for planting trees on private land because most tree planting needs to occur on private land because not only is there the incentive for the upkeep but that's where where most of the tree planting will occur and he said well why do we need to create incentives why can't we just penalize them for not having trees and it's that it's the exact same bass backwards uh, we'll keep it pg approach to legislating which is creating the problem and this is why there's some sort of appeasement strategy with china because they see china as a model and I know that sounds outlandish, but when Neil Ferguson, who is the guy whose track record caused unnecessary livestock deaths on the run up to COVID, and then suddenly we take his advice on, on epidemiology, when he goes out and breaks his own bloody lockdowns, he turned around and said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's nearly exact. China is an authoritarian communist state. We in Europe didn't believe we could get away with their lockdowns, but when we saw that they did it, and then we saw that Italy tried it, we realized we could get away with it. So there is definitely a some affection being shown to the Chinese model in its apparent efficacy, as opposed to its, its limitation on ethical principles, that, that is at the deep root of a lot of our international relations issues. So it's, it's both a, a policymaking framework issue with a lack of principles limiting where they want to go. And also it's, those, those, it's like a feedback loop where those stupid decisions then, then create the same sort of dependence on the tyrannical nations that China's trying to create for developing nations. I, sorry, I, I wanted to add, I totally agree with what you just said, Connor. I also think that, you know, I think I briefly mentioned something earlier about the, the sort of the approach of the Western establishment to nations like China. I think that sort of, I guess, quote unquote, intellectuals, um, people in sort of the higher socioeconomic stratas, so to speak, um, often, they often have quite, they can have, um, you know, quite a an almost a fetishization of uh, authoritarian regimes. It's kind of this idea that, you know, might is right or okay, you know, this group might not benefit, but overall, you know, if we suppress them, you know, we'll improve the GDP by 50% or something and that's that's okay or we'll flatten the curve, for example. Utilitarians. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, definitely that, that philosophy is playing into it a lot. Um, I don't know if conscious, you know, sometimes it'll be conscious, sometimes it won't. I think it's just this general sort of admiration. I think also, um, speaking about China specifically, I think it's quite short-sighted. I think that I've written a lot about, um, a lot recently about sort of global demographic trends. Uh, and in China, for example, when you look at just the devastating impact that's still going on, in the aftermath of the one-child policy, um, this means that by you know the start of the next century, China will have experienced a 48% decline in its population. It's simply not going to be you know the one-world superpower with those kind of trends afoot. It's not going to happen. Um, we need to be you know strengthening our relationships with um, countries like Nigeria and India who are going to be experiencing stronger demographic trends in the future. And of course, they are Commonwealth members. So I hope that that will play into play into our relationships with them and hopefully you know we'll have more constructive relationships with india and China, uh, india and nigeria rather who although flawed um and nigeria in particular having a lot of sectarian issues you know they are quote-unquote democracies that there's an opportunity there whereas in china you know there are many many groups striving for those kind of things but they're in the minority and they're up against a highly efficient 
centralized regime that simply does not tolerate any dissent. I think it's a good point. Me and Noah and many people at Conservative Friends of Conf, we regularly talk about China. And one of the things we often say is China is, um, it offers a great opportunity for Commonwealth countries. It offers your, your India's, Nigeria's, like you've mentioned, and there's, there's so many more, um, and an opportunity for us. Um, I see it, I work in finance predominantly, and I see this as a diversifying our portfolio strategy. I, this is what I look at China as an opportunity for us to start to diversify our portfolio away from necessary China. But I think we have to be realistic. Um, and it's like, uh, we had a, uh, I spoke to a Canadian MP about this recently. And the, the, the reality is, and the issue is, we almost will be prepared to slap them on the wrists. But we know if we go any further than that, they will cause serious economic damage to our country. If we decide to go gung-ho or on a war with them, or we decide to reimpose tariffs, or we decide to go down this route, the UK economy, we're in a recession. Like fact, they will cause catastrophic um, realities to this country, not just our country, probably America and a lot of Europe. So I think we have to be realistic. And I think my sort of um, take on it is that we should slowly start to just diversify our portfolio. And I think that that's the way realistically you can have a serious action on China. China has such influence on our country and on the US. I think, Connie, you rightly said about how the CCP me and her discusses of how they have a, a taken pretty much every single, well, they have it, it's, it's a government policy that they have it taken essentially every single business um, that is in China. So I think we have to be realistic at the same time, this idea that we're just going to move away from China tomorrow, this is not going to happen. It's going to take years and years and years and countries like India, Nigeria, they offer potential solutions, but this is going to take a very long time. Um, I know we're deviating a bit away from climate, but no one knows that we can't stop talking about China at the moment. Um, no, also, sorry, so, we're talking about we're talking about you know a global economic strategy, and you know we're not going to be we're not going to be innovating to circumvent the issues that climate brings up if we don't have if we don't have a stable economy, we don't have the income to fund those solutions, fund the research. So even though you know maybe we are going off on a bit of a tangent, it, I think it's definitely relevant and. You are correct. It's not going to be overnight and it's not going to be a situation where, okay, yay, that's good to war with China. You know, that, that's not a good idea either. Um, it's going to be a very, uh, a very uh, gradual process of decoupling, I hope. Um, but when it comes to these kind of things, especially if we're talking about sustainability, um, you need to have a long-term approach. It can't just be, you know, this government selected for a few years and they want to be friends with China. The next, the next ones don't, the next ones do. We need to have an actual vision because the Chinese government for sure has a long-term vision and we do not seem to have one right now. But they're not, well, it's not well, they've had a, oh, they've I was going to say, century, it's not as, yeah. not as disconnected um, as some plan. people might be concerned to be because the, the weaning of lots of countries off the petrodollar is, is an opportunity that China definitely sees as its opportunity to research as a global superpower. And that, that surge has been facilitated by the fact that the US in the last X amount of years, um, as, as you said, so no, has had massive hyperinflation problems. So I believe last year, 66% of all dollars ever in circulation were printed in one year. And that's terrifying. And that meant that there's a, I spoke about this in an interview yesterday, there's a doomsday clock somewhere floating around. I forget the exact place, but it, it measures how many years it's going to take for China to outpace the US as a leading global economy. And because of COVID, it got 10 years knocked off the clock in one year. So what we need to do is we need to create the preconditions so that all of the countries that are currently subsisting, essentially in the US petrodollar, aren't 
left out in the cold and have China as the first set of wolves at their door when it comes to massive global decarbonisation. And that's why efforts like the TPP, for example, um, are just a minefield because it makes a lot of countries in there beholden due to the investor state disclosure clauses to buying oil from a bunch of the other countries within the TPP and has no method for recourse in domestic courts. So well, as soon as you try and wean yourself off the oil, the taxpayer has to foot a multi-million dollar bill. And you're seeing that now with the Trans-Canada lawsuit being reopened against Biden after it was opened against Obama and then quelled against Trump for, for the Keystone Access pipeline. We're continually shooting ourselves in the foot and China are the only people that have, have to gain over that. And unfortunately, a lot of money is tied to climate issues, especially since the massive fossil fuel subsidies are going directly and indirectly from, from a lot of governments worldwide. So they're all, they're all interlaced issues. When we talk about international strategies, then I know a sustainable energy free trade area has been something that BCA has uh, proposed in the past. And to me, at least on, on a surface level, I've not researched the, how it would be implemented in huge amount, but on the surface level, it seems like something that would, would be very easily pushed within something like the Commonwealth in a similar way to it, it provide the basis for something like Canada. And because you've got such a diverse, diverse range of developing nations and wealthy ones, to me at least, it seems like a perfect opportunity to to find an avenue for that that isn't isn't going down as as much bureaucracy as say the UN, and then you you don't have um, some of the awful decisions that are made over there. Do you think that that's do you think that's a good opportunity for that? And do you want to expand a little bit more for listeners on what the sustainable energy free trade area would be and would look like? Uh, so I'm doing a policy paper at the moment with the ASI going to specifics of this. It should be published very soon if their editorial department gets a file it under their backside. But one of the models we can use is something like ACTS, which is a group of countries. I know it's spearheaded by the New Zealand government at the moment. And it essentially is a, a set of voluntary non-penalized base commitments towards instituting clean free trade. And the three main principles are eliminating fossil fuel subsidies. So in Britain, that would constitute eliminating direct fossil fuel subsidies by keeping fossil fuels at the 5% VAT tax rate rather than the usual 20. Uh, the same as, they're currently the same as renewables, and we could just elevate that. Um, and and there's, a, there's, a, there's a justification there, as, as in, I know a lot of, sort of libertarian side, I, I, I hate any sort of taxes, the, the, the brave heart or inside of me really despises it, but there's an easy way to say, okay, carbon emissions have and pollution has demonstrable negative externalities of bodily autonomy so you can you can constitute that as a public harm um, and 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 monetarily penalize the com companies most at fault for that the second one as well is removing any sort of tariff on something that can be designated an environmental good there is a european and there was an asian trade block both of them created lists for that and they had comparative overlap the Asian trade block had, uh, I forget the title of it, but they had a lot more problems because they created a lot more of a prescriptive list. The European and uh, South uh, North American one had a more descriptive set of regulations. They created broad categories for anything, and that meant that new technologies can be added to the list over time. They had a lot less problems regulating it, so something like that. And then a voluntary carbon labeling system for businesses, so it doesn't require a lot of government bureaucracy. It doesn't require a lot of the businesses to take out a lot of money uh, they're not forced to at gunpoint, but instead it allows to businesses to add, like the sort of fair trade system, it allows them to add extra statistics on their products for the emissions that go into it and inform more consumer choice. And that therefore incentivizes consumers to, over time, voluntarily adopt more sustainable purchasing practices. Something like that, that, that three-pronged approach is something that Britain should be interested into getting in on, at least interested into 
entering into the foray of negotiations for the terms of that agreement. Currently, we're a bit tepid on it, but there are there's some people sniffing around think tank circles that are pushing them in that direction. I think that that's we've covered a lot of bases there. I think there's been some really, really good discussion. When we were talking to um, Aliza Yaz last week, um, I kind of thought, look, climate, climate change can often get quite heavy. It can often get a little bit dour. So it's good to end with a little bit of positivity. So are you positive? And I hope the answer is yes, looking forward. Um, if so, why? And if not, why? Obviously, as well. Have a little moment to think. I know I've thrown you at. Thrown well, well, um, no, no, I've, I've got, I've got an answer, but I'll, I'll let Georgie go first. Sorry, yeah. Um, I was going to say, um, you know, he, human history is littered with, with, with crises, be they, you know, uh, I guess, primarily um, relating to, you know, human society or ideology or, or you know, physical processes, famine. Um, you know, famine, floods, volcano eruptions. These are things we we have had to deal with, you know, since our genesis or genesis, whichever you you believe. Um, <laughs> um, and at the end of the day, um, necessity is the mother of all invention. Um, the you know the power of you know the liberal markets to innovate is you know in the past. In the past sort of 20 years, we've just seen monumental changes and improvements in living conditions, in life expectancy, in medicine, in education, in, in all those sort of qualifiers of, of quality of life and of, and of quote unquote progress or, you know, development. Um, I think that there are many things we still can do. The world, you know, nowadays, it just changes so fast. It's hard to even know where we'll be with this kind of technology in a year, never mind, you know, five, 10 years, 15 years. Um, so I think that there is definitely, you know, there is there are definitely positives to think about. I'm hopeful, um, but also, you know, it depends on how, in terms of sort of global geopolitics, definitely depends on how, you know, the US and Europe decide to react to the other forces that we're competing with, I suppose, um, globally. Um, but yeah, nothing is ever... Nothing's ever set in stone. Um, I think there's always hope, um, even though you know I'm definitely a pessimistic person. I think that looking at these things, you have to sort of, you have to have a nuanced perspective. You can't be sort of, you know, everything is going to go wrong or everything's going to go great because we don't know. But we do know that, you know, we live, you know, <laughs> we live in a society, guys. Um, I knew you were going to um, say that. <laughs> natural processes you know there's balance and cycles and i think that i think ultimately i hope and i i do believe that we will rise to the challenge you know as as a as a species i think that we have all the resources able to do that at our disposal um but yeah um unfortunately in terms of global decision making it is very complex and who knows sort of what things would arise but i think that we definitely have the power to um to solve these issues and, and handle them in the best way possible. I think the trajectory for global development is excellent. I think the main thing that gets in its way is again, as we spoke about before, the lack of a limiting principle on institutional power and the people staffing those institutions are the meddling midwit kinds who believe, oh, if I can legislate outcome for one sphere of public or private life, I can do it for all. 
and they have the ideological possession that they know what's best. The best thing governments, institutional bodies, etc., can do right now is create the preconditions for the experts, as in titans of industry, as it were, to innovate and pull us out of this quagmire that we're in globally by letting go of the reins a little bit and and legislatively retreating because the main I'm, I'm i'm very much of the reagan mindset and i, I believe that things at like the paris accords and that bear it out of where the scariest thing you can hear is hi i'm from the government and i'm here to help it's it's not going to work they need to they need to back off so am i optimistic about what people are doing in terms of the private industry innovations yes very. Am I optimistic about the government not stopping them? Am I optimistic about people within these institutions not buying into the the crazed stockholder capitalism, which is another synonym for fascism, definitely, coming out of the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Policy? No. But if there's one thing that we can do, especially people like the BCA, and especially me starting the policy section, it's talk so much that we annoy people into getting what we want. And that's kind of our job is to act as the limiting principle. It's to act as the corrective measure policy-wise for people in high up institutions to be given new ideas and go, okay, maybe I don't need to put my fingers in every pie. Maybe I can just let the process play out and, and it's going in the right trajectory. And, and that's the best way it can unfold. Terrific. Thank you very, very much, guys. I really enjoyed that. It's all right, mate. Cheers for the invite. Thank you. Thank you.